The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning again. We are finishing 1 John today. I want to say thank you for deciding to come here for your spring break. Imagine how silly all those people who went to Cabo are going to feel when they found out they could have come to TBC. Because I had a couple of friends that were headed on a journey and they were afraid of flying, deathly afraid of flying. And they were going on a mission trip to Rwanda with our, uh, our, our summer team. And I was a missions pastor and they wanted to talk to me about their fears. Now, I'm not going to tell you who they were, but it was Brad Bankhead and Skeeta Jenkins. <laughs> and... Uh, really afraid to fly, going to fly for a long time. And so they wanted to ask, could I give them some confidence? And so I just said, yeah, I mean, most planes don't crash, right? That didn't do a lot. So I explained to them, most of their journey would be over water. And if the plane crashes over water, there's a life vest. That didn't seem to help them. I told them the life vest had a whistle and a light. That didn't help them. So I said, do you know why... It has a blinking light. And they said, no, why? And I said, it's in case the sharks can't hear the whistle. <laughs> that did not instill confidence in them. But let me tell you what Brad and Skeeta did not do. They didn't get on that airplane and, and walk in the cockpit and say to the pilot, can you explain to me what these 70 or 80 switches and 120 circuit breakers mean and what they all do? What they did was they got on the airplane, trusting that the pilot could get them where they needed to go. And he did. They had a great trip in Rwanda. They got back on an airplane and came back home because they trusted the pilot has the knowledge to get me where I'm going. So John keeps saying to these people living in first century Rome, we know, we know, we know. Now it's not that that they're ever going to know everything, but what he wants them to know is that they can trust the person and work of Jesus Christ to give them eternal life. He, he begins the section that we're reading that's just really the last several verses of the, of the letter. He says, I write these things to, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, what does he mean when he says that, that you may know? There are about five ways of knowing, and each of them involves some knowledge you can take comfort in and have confidence in, and each of them involves a measure of faith. And the first is intuition. You just kind of know. You just kind of know. If a, if a lady is expecting a baby, she gets about eight or nine months pregnant, it might not be time for the baby to come just yet, but when that lady starts nesting, she starts cleaning her house like she's never cleaned it before. Somehow you know in a couple of weeks that baby's coming, right? Or if it's October, no matter how good they've done all year long, you can know the cowboys are going to tank. You just know. <laughs> it's intuition, but you have your standard of proof. Then the second way is called phenomenology or it's the way things appear. You just know the sun is going to rise. It might be cloudy all day long, but you know the sun is going to rise, except it actually doesn't. It just looks like it does, right? 
but you know. You're not gonna go to sleep tonight wondering if the sun will come up tomorrow. It will, cloudy or not, because of the way things appear. It's a standard of truth. And then there's the scientific method. It's a way to know things, and it's based on our five senses. Just about every machine in the history of humanity is an extension of the scientific method. And there are lots of things we've come to learn through scientific method. There's a lot that we can know. But the scientific method can't really tell us anything about 100,000 years or a million or a billion years ago. There are things that we can guess, but we can't go back and observe those things. Our records really only go back about 200 years, and so you have to assume a lot of constants. It requires a bit of faith. But there's a lot we can know. Then there's courtroom or judicial knowledge where evidence is or isn't presented. It is or isn't allowed. And based on what we understand, based on the evidence, we come to believe or not believe things to be true. And then finally, there's personal revelation. What I don't mean by personal revelation is I had a vision and so this is going to happen. What I do mean is that people reveal things about themselves to us. I have a friend named Austin. He's not here today. If he was, I would make him nervous because I'm going to tell you there are things I know about Austin that you do not know, and he probably doesn't want me to tell you those things. He's not here, so I will not. I wouldn't tell you if he was here, right? But see, Abraham and Moses knew God. Things like the incarnation happening or Paul says, I hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't entered into the heart of man, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Who has known the spirit of Yahweh, the Lord, he asks. And science can't really tell us anything about that, but it's a way we know things. Each way of knowing can provide some help with understanding reality. And John is writing to those who have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that they might know that they have eternal life. He uses a couple of ways of knowing, courtroom evidence, personal revelation, what he has seen, Jesus who has appeared and will appear, and he wants believers to have confidence that they have eternal life. That's why he has written this letter. So let's read verses 13 through 21 of 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God, we pray today that those of us in this room who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, might just walk in utter confidence in the eternal life he has given us. And God, we pray for those who have not yet believed, God, that they might believe and have life in his name. Help us to see what we may know and let that be enough for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, John says, I'm writing these things to you who believe, to those who do believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have life in his name. See, throughout our series and throughout this letter, we've reminded you John is combating the teaching of Gnostics. They say they've got a secret knowledge, a special knowledge that no one else has, and only if you understand what they understand can you really have a satisfying life, know the truth about God, but John is saying, no, you don't need special knowledge. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you can know you have life in his name. He wants them to know so much that 13 times in this little letter, he says, we know or that we may know. You can have confidence, you can have confidence, you can have confidence. Now, if you go through life as some people do, having to know all the details before you believe anything, you're probably gonna live a fairly frustrated life. And here, here's why. Because there's a lot we're not gonna know and a lot we cannot control. I, I think the thing that parenting has taught me more than anything is that I cannot control people like I think that I can control them. But there are things that I can have confidence in. I write these things so that you who believe may know that you have eternal life. Not just life, but eternal life. Life that is in Christ and with God. Life that will be forever with God apart from the presence of sin and pain and brokenness. And life that is now supernatural, transformative life in the spirit that is qualitatively different than just the breathing in, breathing out existence that the mass of people lead in quiet desperation. You can have life. And he says not just that you can have life, but you can have relationship with a God and you can ask things of him and he will answer you. This is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now there are two mistakes people make when it comes to prayer. One is that they just don't believe God can do anything so they don't ask very much of him. The other is that we take this verse and we leave off the according to his will and we just think we can ask whatever we want and God's gonna give it to us and if he doesn't, we're sorely disappointed. I don't understand, Chase. I asked for the truck of my dreams and God has not answered me. I'm really, really confused. I asked for a Tesla. Did God think I was asking for a Tesla factory 60 miles south of me? He answered that prayer. Well, this is according to his will, right? There, there is in no sense that the Bible speaks of us being able to checkmate God. I'll just ask him for what I want and he's gonna give it to me because if that were the case, we would be God, not him. 
If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know the requests we have. Now, this can be confusing, but it's not intended to be. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's literally he hears us with favor. The God who made the world, who we've sinned against tremendously, hears us. And so that should give us confidence. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of him. Now, again, we can be confused and we can read this in a very Western, precise way. Well, anything I ask, he's going to give me, right? Every particular. But the reality is we have very finite knowledge and God has infinite knowledge. He doesn't always ask how we or answer how we want him to but he does answer according to his will. And I think what John wants us to understand is that we can trust him, simply that we can trust him. Paul described this in another way. John has just said, I want you to know in Christ you have eternal life. And so you can have the requests that you've made Really, the idea is that the greatest request, the greatest trouble, the greatest thing we needed help with, Jesus has answered. So Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, you might read that and go, see, Chase, all things, everything I ask, but I don't think that's Paul's intent or John's intent. It's in context. How will he not graciously give us all things, all the things we need for life and godliness is how Peter describes it. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And by these, by his glory and goodness, he's made us partakers of great and precious promises so that we can partake of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust He's given us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. I think what Paul is saying and what John is implicitly saying is that the risen Christ is interceding for you and me at the right hand of the Father. We can trust him. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? All these things the first century churches Paul and John wrote to are experiencing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness or danger or sword, for it is written for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors. We are the overcomers, John says that we are. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think Paul is saying and John is saying we can have confidence when we cry out to him that he cares for us and when we ask according to his will, He answers us. We can have confidence. We can trust him. 
We're not going to know what he knows. But in our unknown, we can trust him. And then John, there, there are these just really odd couple of verses here that we need to talk about. Verses 16 and verse 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, what in the world does John mean? Let's just start with this first phrase. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Well, first... Just when you see another believer in sin, what is your first instinct? What's your first instinct? Do you get frustrated? Do you get angry? Do you get sad? Do you just kind of watch it and go, oh, this is not going to end how they think this is going to end? Or is your first instinct, is my first instinct to pray? Your brother in sin that doesn't lead to death, pray. Pray and God will answer you. Ask according to his will and God will give him life. See, we, sometimes we'll pray for something or someone. God doesn't answer immediately and we cease to pray. Sometimes we just don't pray at all. Sometimes we get upset or angry or bothered instead of praying. And it's hard to be mad at somebody you're praying for. John says, pray. That's what Augustine's mother did. Augustine, this great pillar of our faith, was not always a believer. Augustine was seeking what he called the good life. If you read his confessions, you'll read over and over about this concept of the good life. And initially, he was seeking the good life through revelry, through sex, and through substances. And he didn't find it. And his mom, Monica, Prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. Dr. Sean Wilhite at Cal Baptist says, Monica loved Augustine unconditionally, even throughout his life of sin far away from the Lord. She prayed for him and cried for him and prayed for him and cried for him with immense devotion and care. I, I wonder, some of you know, your story is the story of someone who prayed and prayed and prayed until you came to faith. And maybe right now there's someone that you're praying for and you've been praying for a long time. And John's word to us is that we would continue to pray. But then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. Well, what in the world does that mean? There's a sin that leads to death. I mean, doesn't all sin lead to death? The wages of sin is death, right? Well, yeah, we're gonna talk about that. But what does this mean? There is a sin that leads to death and I don't think you should pray. I'm not saying you should pray for that one. Well, there are lots of things people have thought this might mean. Some denominations would teach that there are venial sins, sins that are bad but don't lead to death and cardinal sins, sin that leads to death. Others believe that what John is talking about is that this sin is so serious that it would bring about discipline from God. And that discipline, if carried out, might continue on to death. Others believe that if someone has committed a sin, a crime that's so great that it deserves capital punishment. That's the sin that leads to death. I find that one the most difficult to believe because it's, 
I don't think John would be saying, hey, prison ministry, that's a really bad idea, right? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think John is writing and probably tying this to the people who have seceded from this church. He says in chapter two, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have never gone out from us. These people have left the faith. They've said, you need a new knowledge. Jesus is not enough. And I think John is writing about those who've rejected Christ. That's the sin that leads to death. Ultimate unbelief that never repents and never turns to Jesus. It's this rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, if there's a sin that leads to death, how are we to have confidence? How can we rest? Because when I read this, my natural tendency to go is to go, oh, if there's a sin that leads to death, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just me. I struggle with sin. With John, we've got to remember, he's writing the whole letter to the church for lots of reasons, but ultimately that they would have confidence in Christ. He tells them several times, I write this to you because of this. In 1 John 1, 4, he says, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. There's joy to be found in Christ, a life that's the light of men. And I'm writing to you that you'll have this, that our joy would be complete. He says, I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Hey, I really don't want you to experience the life of sin. I'm writing that you won't. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm writing to you because we have an advocate. He'll go on to say he's the propitiation, the covering for our sins, and not just for ours, but for the whole world. I want you to have confidence. He says, I write that you may have confidence. A little further in in 1 John 2, in verses 12 through 14, he writes to children and young men and fathers, and he says, I'm writing this to you. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. Little children, I'm writing this to you fathers. Why? Because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. And then he says, again, I write to you fathers because you know him who is true, who's from the beginning. I've written to you children because you know the father. I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I want you to have confidence. He said, I'm not writing to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. I know that you know the truth, so have confidence in Christ. He says in 1 John 2, 26, I'm writing these things because there are people who are trying to deceive you. I want you to have rest. I want you to have confidence. And again, our text began, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Is there sin that leads to death? Yes, there is, but it's rejection of Jesus. That's not who you are. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So one of the the struggles that we have is it's harder for us to believe in 21st century America is that there is sin that would lead to death than there is not. And the shocking thing, if we understand scripture, is that anybody who sinned would not spend eternity in death separation from God. How can there be sin that does not lead to death? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life. In Romans 3, Paul describes how this could be. It's because Christ has been sent. He says in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What that means is that you and me, none of us will ever live righteous enough to be justified before holy God. Our sins deserve death. Well, how can there be sin that does not lead to death? But now, verse 21 of Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's come to humanity apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness, they tell of this righteousness that's coming. It's righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. I'm writing these things to you who believe so that you may know you have eternal life. It's a righteousness for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus Forward is the one who would take the punishment for our sins, who would be our substitute. So that the wrath of God you and I deserve, the wrath of God these believers in the first century Roman Empire deserved would be removed because of Jesus. So if we're in him, our sin will not ultimately lead to death because we will not remain in our sin. We'll be transformed by the power of the gospel. We know everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Well, wait, Chase, I'm confused. I still sin. Me too. But I just keep coming back to this Savior over and over and over. I can't not come back to him and he keeps changing who I am day by day, week by week, year by year. And I bet that's your story too. I think the difference, how do we know the difference is the difference is that there are those who dive into sin and I've seen men and women dive into sin and and often it looks like they reject their spouse and then they reject their small group and then they reject their larger community and then they reject the church because ultimately they are rejecting the gospel and they never really were part of God's people. And I've seen others just utterly blow it, but they just keep coming back. They return to Christ. They return to God's people. They return to their family. They return to the church because they can't turn away. I I think about one of our pastors on staff was ministering to a person over a long period of time with a lot of graciousness and a a lot of patience. And the person finally just said, no, I want to live however I want to and, and still say Jesus is my Lord. Well, it's actually a rejection of Christ. It's ultimate rejection of Christ. And that's not what John has in mind. It's that our lives would be being transformed and that we would be protected and kept 
from the evil one. We know that everyone who has been born of God, God does not keep on, who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Why? Because he who was born of God, Jesus who came and lived and died for our sins, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Well, this is right in line with John's gospel with what Jesus says about himself. In John 10, where Jesus has just said, I'm the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm the door, I'm the gate. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, these are mine and you're not taking them from me. Sometimes when I talk to a believer who's struggling with eternal security, what I'll, what I'll say is I'll, I'll take my ring off and I'll put it in my hand and say, let's say my ring is my love for my children. Would you like to try to take this ring out of my hand? And so far, everybody says No. Now, if they tried, I'd kick them in the shins, right? I'm holding on to my love for the children. However, however, there's a problem. My hand is not omnipotent, right? And I've got my friend Josh Strawman over here who has arms the size of Rhode Island. And if he wanted to take that ring out of my hand, he probably could, right? But that's because I'm not as strong as God. And the God who made the heaven says of you and me, if we're in Christ, nobody is taking you from me. He who was born of God protects believers and the evil one does not touch them. Jesus, who Paul said is interceding for us, prayed this for his disciples the night before he died. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. So somehow in the midst of all this brokenness, we're protected by the very prayer of Jesus Christ to the Father that the evil one would not touch us. Now hear me, we've got neighbors, we've got family members, we've got coworkers who need the love of Christ in their life because the evil one is touching them. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now you can read this and do one or two things. You can read this and you go, see, right? The world lies in the power of the evil one. It's just gone to pot. Or you can read this and go, the world lies in the power of the evil one. My my neighbors are being deceived. I got friends who desperately need the love of Christ expressed through me. There are people in my workplace who need to know there is freedom and protection from the evil one in Christ. It doesn't have to be this way. So we share, we invite, we love these people because we have compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd. We have compassion on those who are in the grip of the enemy's deception. It doesn't have to be this way for them because it doesn't have to be this way for us. Verse 20 is just packed with good news. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. Why? So that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. And he is eternal life. We 
No. We know this. We know the Son of God has come and given us understanding. See, a lot of people want to know everything in order to believe. Thomas did. He said, I'll believe if I see his side and touch the holes in his hands and the risen Christ said, Thomas, check it out, right? But blessed is he who has seen, who's not seen and believed. That's Augustine's story, actually. His mom prayed and prayed and prayed and he wanted to know what the good life was. And he, he said, I never really knew until I believed. And then when I believed, I began to understand. Sometimes you have to trust before you know. But when you trust, you can know this. We can know that he's the son of God. And what do we know about this son of God who's come and given us understanding? Well, we know this. We know who is true, that Jesus is true. He lived and died and rose from the dead so we can trust him. We know also that we are in him because he says that we are in him and he will keep us. We can have confidence. We, we know this is the true God, we are in him who is true and we are and in his son, Jesus Christ. And what do we know about him? He is the true God. And that knowing him is eternal life. John says you can have confidence. You don't need secret knowledge. You know Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So have confidence that he's going to take us on this journey where we need to go. Will there be turbulence? Yes. But can he land this plane? Absolutely. Will we fly over troubled waters? Yes. But he will keep us and take us safely to eternal life. And then John ends with this just strange little statement. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Well, why would John end this letter this way? Why keep yourself from idols? I mean, are these the words of a controlling father who just wants to manipulate his spiritual children? Or are these more like the words of a dad who says, hey, I want to warn you, don't step out into oncoming traffic. Why would he say, keep yourself from idols. I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one, John knows idols cannot save or satisfy. They will destroy you. Those who worship them become like them. They are dead. I think that's one reason, but I think another reason is John has a specific idol in mind. The whole letter is about Gnosticism, this secret knowledge. And I think John is saying, Hey, keep yourself from worshiping knowledge. And the reason is this won't be the last time God's people are being deceived by Gnostics and worship knowledge. We live in a world where knowledge of everything is at our fingertips. We can go to Dr. Google and find out our medical condition. We can go to chat GPT and ask any question and it will tell us. People come to the scripture and go, you don't need to believe what this said back then because here's what it means now. This wasn't the last time people would wrestle with the idol of knowledge, but this also wasn't the first time people would wrestle with the idol of knowledge. See, the first Gnostic 
was not in the first century in Rome. The first Gnostic was in the garden. And he looked at Adam and Eve. Surely God didn't say that. I mean, he, you're not going to die. He knows you'll know good and evil. You'll be like God. Isn't that what the idol of knowledge does? To us, it makes us think we'll be like God. And John, I think he really says, if you want the good life, don't worship knowledge. Rest in Jesus. You can know that you have eternal life. And could that just be enough? Can Jesus just be enough? In him is life, and that life is the light of men. Can we pray together? Would Jesus, you satisfy, you, you satisfy our sin debt so that for us the wages of sin is no longer death. You've taken the wage away. You took it for us and you've given us eternal life. You satisfy the deepest longings for satisfaction, intimacy, wisdom, and in you, we have everything we need for life and godliness through knowing you. So, Father, help us to rest in the yoke that's easy, the burden that's light, that belongs to Jesus Christ. In a world that wrings its hands every day, help us to rest in our Savior. Give us peace. And, Lord, for for people in this room that don't yet know Jesus, that don't know that they can have eternal life, God, would you draw them to you? Would you stir their hearts to believe that believing they might have life in his name? Help us to know you, God. And knowing you is eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.